0: morning. And it's great to be on stage now. We're taking it to another level here in, here at church. And just as Richard Carey wanted me to emphasize, I will not talk down on anyone. Aww. I wanted to credit Richard with that. I guess it's credit. But I do want to first of all thank the CAP ministry. That is our campus and professional ministry. Because last night, they organized an incredibly phenomenal evening for the fathers and their daughters. It was superbly organized. There was food, photos. It was fantastic. And so we, all the fathers just want to thank you so much for putting, putting that on. We do have a, a, a photo from the night just to give you a quick, a quick view of what happened. Right. Oh, actually, oh. <laughs> oh, actually, I don't know how I got in there. That's, <laughs> oh. well, that, that was me sipping coffee from a trophy mug this morning. You may you may think, oh, clearly this thing is rigged. But but listen, my daughters and I, we rehearsed all week for the dance. We exercised. We were ready. We had a routine. So we, we had a lot of fun, though. But um, but I do really want to say it was a great time for the fathers to really set a, a great tone for their daughters. You, you don't understand the impact that a father has in a daughter's life, and I just really want to applaud all the fathers who came with their daughters. They they really set a great tone for our daughters. And thanks again to the cap. Again, that was awesome. Very, very, very awesome. We do have a brother visiting from Denmark. I believe that's you, my man. Joachim. There he is. Welcome. Good to have you here, and I believe online watching us from somewhere, on the, some, somewhere in New Zealand is a, a new sister. She was baptized in the U.S. as a university student. She moved back to New Zealand with plans to eventually move to Auckland, and her name is Hannah, and uh, so just say hey to Hannah on, online. Awesome. Awesome. And if you have a Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 5, and we'll continue our study of the book of Acts this morning, which is an awesome book, really really highlighting the early church and how we are called to imitate the early church. It's idealistic almost in, in the way that it's presented, but it, it's, it's really a call for the Spirit to really empower us and activate us to return to this and always try, try, to, try to reach what the early church looked like in our life and in our actions. So we're going to pray together, and then we're going to read Acts chapter 5 and talk about three things this morning from the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to serve you and worship you and have great fellowship in your family, and and we're grateful to take the communion together as well. And we pray your spirit really, it it does what it always does. We really pray that it it highlights and illuminates our minds to understand you better, the scriptures better, one another better, so that we can represent Christ all the more. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in Acts chapter 5, we've, we've just had uh, the apostles be on trial a little bit, at least Peter and John. And, and now they're going to continue doing what they're doing. And it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a fear in, in verses 12 through 16 of the church. Because if you remember, Ananias and Sapphira have just died. And so a fear is kind of spreading and the church is well respected. But at the same time, there's people that still continue to join the church. And in this context, we'll start reading in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. And the Bible says, love your neighbors too, right? We all love our neighbors, don't we? Yeah, we just got some new neighbors uh, right down the street. And I mean, we, we just wanted to serve them and help them because that's what the Bible calls us to do. So we help, you know, move in a little bit. And uh, Nick and Agnes moved in five houses down from us Uh, we love our neighbors Nick knocked on our door this morning it was awesome good to see you Uh, in Acts chapter 5 verse 17 then the high priest and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy they're filled with jealousy or zeal the actual word is zeal because the apostles are gaining more reputation than them in verse 18 they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. This is all the apostles now. This isn't just Peter and John. When the high priest and his associates arrived... They called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And again, this is a public jail where this took place in verse 24, and hearing this report, The captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. These guys have disappeared into thin air. Until verse 25, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing outside in the temple, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. So the setting is, the apostles are all out preaching and teaching as they have been. The captain of the guard probably goes out and says, Hey, God, let's, let, let me persuade you to come on back. You've kind of escaped jail. We need to go and sort all of this out. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And the question starts, not really a question, but more an accusation of verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, yeah, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross right after they had just said, stop trying to make us guilty for the death of Jesus. He goes at it once again and says, but you are responsible for the death of Jesus. But there's good news. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. That he might bring Israel to repentance, forgive their sins. We're witnesses of these things. We saw this with our own eyes. We're not making this up. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were excited and said, man, tell us more about Jesus. But instead, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Verse thirty-four. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the of the law, who Christians know as being the instructor of Paul, the apostle Paul, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, "Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about four hundred men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God, which is actually happening. They're trying to stop it. But the angel breaks them out of prison because they can't stop it. That's what's going on. And in verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, they listened to the order to not stop talking about Jesus. No, they kept talking about Jesus in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is our passage this morning. And you see the mounting tension starting to rise here in the church. The first few chapters, it's awesome. People are becoming Christians and getting baptized and needs are being met. But now the pressure is mounting. Initially, they brought Peter and John in. They made some accusations. You got to stop teaching. But now they want to issue the death penalty. So you can kind of feel this tension rising and it continues to rise throughout the book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 12, guess what? James gets killed. So it only gets worse for the church as the, as the pressure starts to rise. But in the context of all this, God sends his angel to release his apostles for what reason? To keep preaching. Yes. Keep preaching talking about this new life and there's many things we can learn from this passage but let's look at three of them this morning not that point number one we all need to have a humility toward jesus okay we all need to have some humility toward jesus we all have some preconceived packaged idea of who we think jesus is and if we're not humble we can't ever ever have that changed You see this in this, in this passage here, verse 17 kind of points this a little bit because the high priests and all the associates and the members of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy and they're filled with jealousy because the movement, the, the Christian movement is gaining lots of traction. And instead of being humble and saying, can you tell us more about this? I mean, we, we're knowledgeable, but can you, can you enlighten us? Can you illuminate us a little bit more about who this Jesus is? There, there's really no humility. And they're just afraid because of their power being threatened. And they're filled with jealousy. You see it again in verse 27. And this I just find, every, every time I read this passage, I just found this incredibly wild. You know, because they're, they're in prison, right? Right. And how do they get out? The angel comes and breaks them out. But when they get brought back in to be questioned, in verse 27, the apostles were brought back in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The very first question I want to know if I'm examining them is how in the world did you get out? How did this happen? You know, clearly we had guards there. It was a public prison. Tell me, tell me how you got out. They don't even ask the obvious question. They just say, we told you to stop preaching. You're still preaching. I mean, a little bit of humility would have said like, just just curious though, how did it happen? What took place? But instead, you know, it's not like they dug a tunnel like El Chapo, right? Or they had blueprints tattooed all over their body like Michael Schofield in Prison Break, right? They, they just had an angel come and break them out of prison. Nothing, no question at all. Like, where, where's the humility? I think, man, I, I want to know how it happened. Give me some details. And in verse 38, we see it as well. Although Camillo has a, a sound logical case, he does say if it's from God, then it'll, pers- it'll keep going. If it's not, it'll die out. But he doesn't, really, he doesn't really address the issue. He doesn't say, you know what, we, we actually might want to consider these claims they're making about Jesus. They, they, they say he's from God. They say he is the Messiah and that he was brought back to life and they they say they saw this with their own eyes. We might want to consider that claim. We might want to investigate it just a little bit. Let's, let's look at the evidence there instead of, hey, let's just, let's just let it be, see what God does. It's just from God. I mean, it sounds spiritual, but a little bit more humility. They could have examined the claim they were actually making, right? And, and I find this to be true in my life, in our lives, that we, we all need to have humility toward Jesus because we all think we know who he is until we really meet him. If you don't think that's true, consider this picture. Now, this is a portrait of Jesus from 1940. It's by an American artist named Warner Stallman. And he's famous for, for this portrait, okay? There's 500 million copies of this sold all over the world. It's the most famous Christian portrait all over the globe. Now, when you look at this, though, you think, I mean, he's, he's kind of attractive, I mean, he's got long, flowing hair, kind of a borderline mullet. You know, he's got the blue eyes. He's handsome. He's just kind of like staring into the distance. And, and but, but, how did this come about? It's because the artist thought, "Here's my assumption of who Jesus is." I mean, he's got blue eyes as well, like like a white European guy. Like Jesus was really a white European guy. And so, but there's this impression, there's this assumption that this is who Jesus is. And you'll see this if you if by the way, if you have this in your home, it's not. It's just this is for a point, okay. <laughs> but you might have it. But but the point is that people thought this this is our picture of Jesus. This is what we think Jesus is, this is what we think he looks like, this is what we think he's about. And they and they build those beliefs and assumptions based on all of that, but it's wrong. Okay? In contrast, there is there is a uh a medical <laughs> retired artist who examined Thousands of skulls. That sounds like a pretty awesome job, right? And he, he kind of reconstructed from the from the Middle East what a more accurate picture of Jesus would look like. And that's a massive difference in those two photos. You know what I'm saying? You, you see this guy, you're like, no, no, I can't, I, I can't follow a Jesus like that. Right? But the first one, you think, oh, yeah, I might consider following that guy, you know? But, 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 there's a point in this is that we need to all have a humility toward Jesus, because whether you're Christian or non-Christian, we all come to the table and we think, I kind of got an idea of who Jesus is. I kind of got, got him figured out. I, I, I talked to heaps of people at the university. And they're like, oh, I kind of know what Jesus stands for. I know what he taught about. Okay, well, what's the most common thing he taught about? Love your neighbor, wrong, it's not. What, what do you think it else is? Uh, treat other people, wrong, it's not that either. If you were to hear Jesus on any given day, he's talking about the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's, it's way, the, the, it's the big topic he's always talking about, but people think, oh, I, I gotta figure it out, even you and me. We think, oh, I, I kinda got this Jesus thing down after five years as a Christian, 10 years, 15. But we always need humility toward Jesus. Alright, we, we may think we know what he looks like, but the reality is it's a whole different picture. And it'll change throughout your Christian life. You may understand Jesus in one way, but as you gain a bit more wisdom and insight, you'll understand he is way more than you ever imagined. Right. And we always need to have this humility about who Jesus is. Don't miss out on this new life that's being offered in here because you think you know who Jesus is. Let's all be humble and say, you know what? I, I need to learn more about who this Jesus is. Amen? Amen? Point number two. Real life begins now. Right this minute. Right this second. Most likely if you're a Christian, you, you've had this mindset, you've heard of this mindset, I can't wait for heaven. And there, there's a good truth to that, right? We, that's, that's awesome. We all kind of long for heaven. Perhaps, though, we think, because that's when it'll really begin. That's when life will really take off. That's when I'll really be. And, and there's a truth to that, right? And, but, but I think we've got to understand real life begins right now. Real life begins right now. Why, why do I say that? In verse 20, when the angel breaks them out of prison, he gives them a command. And the command is this, verse 20. go stand in the temple courts, although they're trying to persecute you, although they're trying to kill you, although they'll be after you, go and tell the people about this new life. This new life that can start right now. Go and keep talking about it. This, this message that you have is way too important to be locked up in a prison doing nothing about. Because you need to tell the people all the words. That's what he says, right? Tell the people all the words of this new life. Or all about it. Go out and talk about this new life. And and part of that is the... Peter's sermon in verse 30 through 32, or not his sermon, but his response, where he says that the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead and you killed him, but God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that we might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. So look, you guys blew it, but there's good news. You can change. Life can start right now. That's what he's offering the crowd that he is speaking to. And he's telling them it, it can begin. Now, if we think about this story, Acts chapter 5, in context of the bigger story of the Bible, because the Bible is a lot of little stories that make one big story, right? So if you look at this little story about life and, and what Peter and the apostles are saying, they, they want to tell the world all about this new life. And when when the Bible first starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it, it says that, the Lord formed a man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became what? A living being. That's how the story begins in Genesis chapter 2. It's dust and divinity, basically. God God scrapes some dust and then breathes into it and we become living beings. Life. That's how it all starts. But shortly after that, mankind tries to pursue a different course of life by trying things on their own. And it's interesting because the serpent says, you know, if, if God knows that if you if you eat this fruit, you'll become like God, right? That's what he says. But what's interesting about that is they were already like God. Because in the very, in the very context of the creation, it says in our image, in our likeness, create man and woman. They were like God. But this, this confusion comes I think, well, we think we can live different. We want we, we to we, we be the judge of what's good and what's evil, and so it kind of spirals out after that, and so they don't actually die, even though that's kind of what, what's supposed to happen, right? They don't die, they keep living, but there is a death that occurs, and it's a spiritual death. Because they don't really have this access to God, this un, uh, now their access to God is a bit limited, and God has to come in and redeem, and, and their relationships kind of fracture. And so it, there is, there's not a physical death that takes place, but there is spiritual death that comes into the world as a result of people trying to live their own life. That's what happens. And Paul will say this kind of same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't say you were buried in the ground and weren't physically dead, but he does say you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live and follow the ways of this world when you followed Satan, basically. So there is some kind of life that started in the very beginning, but then this death, the enemy, entered into the world at some point, And it didn't cause everybody to die suddenly, but it did cause some kind of death, some spiritual death and some relational death. And so... <clears throat> When we read through this in the Bible, Jesus comes on the scene and he's basically kind of scoping everything out. He says, I know everybody has experienced this death, but I've come to start the real life right now. And it's most prominent in the gospel of John. Very truly, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, this is John chapter five, has eternal life. This says you don't have to wait for it until you get to heaven. It's you believe and you become a believer of Jesus and your trajectory changes right now. Forever. So re- Jesus comes on the scene and he's offering, he says real life can start right now. Amen. Right now. And if, and if you don't believe, your trajectory is in a different angle but if you do you have eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life the wording of that is important has eternal life meaning this is worded in such a way that it's it happens when you become a follower of Jesus you repent you get baptized your eternal life begins life begins right then it changes Brendan referred to this passage in the welcome. John chapter 10, verse 10. And we've seen, we heard how his life is changed. I have come that they may have life. And have life to the full. Right now. Right here. Right now. And in John 17, Jesus says the same thing. I have come so you can have eternal life. And it all begins when they believe and become believers of Jesus. Even in our passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 20. It's the same word. Go tell people about this new life. You got to talk about this life. It's John 17. Now, the, the funny thing about us and our culture is that we're always being told what makes our life more palatable. If you have this, if you have that, then you'll truly experience life. If you have Alexa in your home, and if you have Alexa in your home, it's all good. You know, I think it's kind of cool, but that doesn't mean that your life begins when you say, Alexa, make me a cup of coffee or whatever Alexa does. But marketers and advertisers, they try to get you to make your wants become needs in order to think my life will be improved. My life begins when I have new clothes, new car, new cologne, new whatever, or when I get Alexa, that's when life begins. But it never delivers. It never, ever delivers. And... The other, the other part is that for, for Christians, we often think, oh, you know what, once, once we die and we cease to exist, well, the kind of the pop culture view is I'll go up to heaven or I'll go down to hell, right? That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Jerusalem comes down from heaven and, and recreates everything. And so, but it, it's, it's the future fulfillment of what already has taken place. Your eternal life, your timeline started when you repented and you got baptized. So the good news is your life can start right now. Not when you get your driver's license, not when you turn 21, not when you retire. When you become a disciple of Jesus, your life begins right then. And that's awesome. And I think this is, this is a big deal because I've done it, you've done it, the world does it. They pursue other means of having life, namely idolatry they chase things they think are transcendent but are not and what happens is they chase they chase something like sex and they think that's the transcendent thing and then when they when they indulge in it it fails to deliver and they do it again and then it fails to deliver again and then they do it again and it becomes idolatrous but jesus says i've come that you actually can have real life real real genuine fulfillment and, and, and what what's happened is throughout our culture is we treat these things and, and, and we pretend that they're going to give us comfort. That they're going to make us experience life. And it's, it's all illustrated. That's what every advertiser or marketer is trying to get you to do. You'll really experience life this way. But Jesus says, no, when you become my follower, you can have eternal life and it can start today. Third and lastly. This new life can change our attitudes. In chapter 5, verse 40, they get persuaded by Gamaliel to not put him to death. So the next thing they'll do is they'll just call him in and have him flogged. Verse 40. In Judaism, in Deuteronomy, they say there's a form of punishment that you can be flogged with 40 lashes minus one. And it's a pretty cruel form of punishment. So they would, it's what they did to Jesus, but the person would bend down on their knees. They would have their back and chest exposed. And they would they would whip you twice on your back and then once on your chest. And they would count up to 39 times because there was this kind of law that said it's supposed to be 40, but just in case you missed one, We'll go for 39 so that it's not a cruel form of punishment, like being whipped publicly isn't cruel. But anyway, what, what happens is that's, that's what all of the apostles experienced as a result of preaching. They're flogged. The apostle Paul says in his ministry, he's, plo- he's flogged five times. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's some pretty hardcore stuff, okay? We're not talking about, hey, stop it, you better not. Hey, I don't really believe in your Jesus. Ah, uh, go away, don't talk to me, I don't really, hey, I'm not listening, ah, blah, blah, blah. This is like publicly being flogged. This is a big deal, okay? And, and the apostles, when this happens to them, in verse 41, they leave the Sanhedrin, and they're flat out rejoicing. Did I read that right? The apostles left the Sanhedrin because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for their name. They all just, they're probably bloody, they're probably tired, but they come out rejoicing? Like, how does that even make sense? And in verse 42, they keep preaching and teaching, even though they just have been told not to? Like, okay, that's that just does not make sense. At all, but when Jesus gives new life, it also gives us the ability to have new attitudes, and that's what's going on here. They're rejoicing after this flogging, they don't come back and and tell the church, Man, you guys don't understand how hard it is to be an apostle, you guys don't understand what we just went through. It makes no sense, we just got beat. Like, and we weren't even really doing anything wrong. Guys, let me, let me gain, a, let me garner a little sympathy here. Like, we just got beat, guys. And for no reason at all. That's not what they're saying. There's none of that. There's not even a whiff of that. They're not complaining. They're not saying, oh, guys, I just don't understand why this is even happening. Why are we being beat? We're trying to do what Jesus told us. That we're, we're trying the best we can. And we're getting beat for it. And I think there's there's this point here, and there's a the it's made in a book by the Rentons, Justin Irene Renton, about uh, healing of the healing of a wounded idealist that we, we have these idealistic notions of Christianity, but when they don't turn out the way we think, we can kind of get cynical or we kind of oh, I thought I thought I was just supposed to glide through life unscathed and unscarred by everything. Not so scathing and the scars still come but we can have new attitudes because of a new life I thought since I'm following Jesus nothing would ever hurt me or harm me or I wouldn't be hurt in my relationships or I wouldn't experience trials or tribulations or difficulty yes you probably will but you can have a new attitude because you have a new life Turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is one of the passages mentioned in this book about how to really solve this issue. When you think, I thought Jesus was supposed to do this. I thought my marriage was supposed to do this. I thought my Bible talk was supposed to do this. I thought the church was supposed to do this. But it didn't. And it doesn't meet your expectations. Here's what the Bible says the solution is. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16. And 17 and 18. Memorize all three. It's the shortest three scriptures you'll be able to memorize. Rejoice always. That's what the apostles are doing. You mean right after we got flogged? Yeah. Rejoice always. You mean right after I have this big conflict? Yeah. You mean even when not everybody showed up for an event? Yeah. Rejoice always. I mean, even when I have difficulty in health? Yeah. Rejoice always. I mean, Even when I have troubles at work, rejoice up. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And this is one of the only passages that describes what God's will actually is. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that, that just seems too hard. You know, what about when everybody's bringing their problems to me and I don't have any answers? Am I supposed to rejoice? Yes. What about when I have problems of my own and I can't figure them out? Am I supposed to rejoice? Am I supposed to pray continually? Am I supposed to give thanks? Yes. That may sound like pie in the sky, but th- th- that's what happens when you have a new life. You understand this. This is all part. This is all just a tiny part of it. My real life has begun. My future life is in heaven, and I can rejoice and be grateful always. I can give thanks in all circumstances. That's wildly challenging. And I, and I want to call you and encourage you all to try to practice that very verse this week. I mean, if you take nothing away today, oh man, let me, let me rejoice always. When your kids are giving you fits, when you're trying to get to church and you can't get them in the car, man, I rejoice this moment I'm being refined in my character you know what I mean like always really always yeah. that's how you don't become cynical or critical you, like, hey man everything God's sovereign he's got everything in control I'm going to rejoice I'm going to pray and I'm going to give thanks as we conclude this morning th- this passage has a lot to teach us but, but it is about this new life it's God thought this new life was too important to be kept locked up and yes, it's about persecution and all this kind of stuff. But God says, I need an angel to break them out of prison so they can keep talking. Because there's new life to start right now. We all need this humility toward Jesus to experience it, though. And let's maintain a humility to Jesus to come to him and become a believer. But throughout our Christian life, we all need, we all need to be humble toward Jesus. And we all need to know that real life begins right now. When you become a disciple, it has begun. And last, we can all have new attitudes because of this new Christian life. And we can be like the early church, day to day, proclaiming the good news about this new life. Amen.